Welcome to the Dignity of Women, where we dig deep into the vocation and dignity of women in the church in modern times and as an answer to the call for a new evangelization. I'm your host, Kimberly Cook. Joining me today is Carrie Grass. Carrie Grass has a doctorate in philosophy from the Catholic University of America. She is the editor at the online magazine Theology of Home. Carrie is a regular contributor to Catholic and secular media. She is the author of seven books, including her new book, Theology of Home, The Marian Option, and The Anti-Mary Exposed. Carrie is a homeschooling mother of four. Thank you so much for joining us today, Carrie. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So your recent book, The Anti-Mary Exposed, blows the lid off the toxic feminist influences of our confused and deteriorating society. Who exactly is the anti-Mary? Is it the devil, the spirit of evil itself, the Jezebel spirit, or is it feminism? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that behind it ultimately, of course, is the devil. Um, I think it's just a feminine manifestation of it such that he's really targeting women in a very specific way that I don't think we've, we can say we've seen anywhere throughout history before. And uh, yeah, I think it's he's obviously behind it, but it's the manifestation of it is directed specifically at the hearts of women. And that's what we've been living with for about five decades now. So what was that that really led you to call it anti-Mary? Um, that's obviously a bold mm-hmm. statement that I'm sure gets a lot of people, especially Catholics who maybe hold Mary near and dear. And then I'm sure it has a completely different take to non-Catholics who really mm-hmm. don't hold Mary in very much esteem. So maybe they don't even think that being anti-Mary is that much of a problem. Yeah. No, I initially came up with the idea when I was working on my book, The Marian Option. And I was struck because, you know, by two things. First of all, you always see this reference to a male-female balance. You've got Adam and Eve, of course, the first parents, and then you have Jesus and Mary as the new Adam, the new Eve. It occurred to me that, you know, we hear about an antichrist or the antichrist, um, depending on how the word is used, but I'd never heard of an anti-Mary. So where is that female complement? But then I also was looking very specifically at who Our Lady is. And, you know, if you look at her the way that I did in, in the, the Marian Option, sort of this bird's eye view of all the ways that she's interceded for us, that we are we can track throughout history, really the argument is made, and I'm not the only one that's made it, certainly, um, that she is the most powerful woman in human history. Actually, National Geographic even made that argument. So if you look at her as, you know, this most powerful woman in all of human history, and then you compare her with the women of our own culture, we just saw this huge divide that the values that these women of our own culture were embodying are diametrically opposed to who Our Lady is. And um, so I was kind of fascinated by that. And so I just I kept digging into this and, and seeing this divide. And, and so suddenly this idea of an, the spirit of an anti-Mary, not necessarily an individual, although you know plenty come to mind um, <laughs> that we could give the title to, but um, I don't mean it in that way. I mean it in more as a spirit that has affected women and um, has really almost, if you look at it starting in the 1960s, it's been almost unstoppable. Women have just taken it on tremendously in the culture and we haven't really done a great job of stopping it up to this point. And when you say looking at Mary from our cultural perspective outside of any religious eye, she really does not seem powerful in the sense that Mm -hmm. we understand power, the meek, the mild, Mm -hmm. the quiet, 
all of those kind of things. Humble. Humble and that her power, as far as the church is concerned, is kind of revolving around submission and giving life. Those two Mm -hmm. things don't really sound like power in our culture, Mm -hmm. especially from the women that we hear from by today's standards. They're certainly not touting their motherhood Mm -hmm. or their submission by any means. It's pretty much the complete opposite of that. You talked about the Jezebel spirit and the Lilith spirit in the book. Mm -hmm. Those kind of things have been celebrated since the 60s and 70s. What is that? What is the the Jezebel spirit and the Lilith Mm -hmm. spirit? Um, Yeah, she mentioned once in scripture, but um, she actually predates the scripture significantly. So yeah, I think you have two points there. The first one I think has this, is a question of this issue of power and Our Lady. And I think that even the way that you frame that question is fascinating because I think that bespeaks something that's very contemporary. People in the past weren't worried about power. They weren't worried about how powerful I can be. And I think this is what, um, what I call the matriarchy, this elite group of women that sort of dictate the way that we think about things through politics, fashion, Hollywood, pop music, books that are published, magazines, all of these kinds of things have a, a kind of a united voice that I've just grouped into this idea of the matriarchy. I think that question is even a fascinating one. I think what biblically, if we look at it, the, the bigger issue is to be fruitful. Um, how do we show that we're fruitful? And if you if you reframe the whole discussion from power to fruitfulness, then the landscape looks much different. And I think that's kind of needs to be a starting point. But I, I wanted to also address the second part of your question, which is related to Jezebel and, and the Lilith spirit. There's just so much here. And I think, uh, you know, I first started pulling on this thread of who Lilith was very early on and try to get a sense of who she was. She's The name has been used by uh, it was used by Sarah McLaughlin and for this um, music festival that she put together for just women musicians called the Lilith Fair. And I think it went on for several years and I think it kind of imploded, not surprisingly. And then it was also used, there was a, the Lilith Fund that was set up for women to get abortions after Hurricane Harvey blew through Houston. But it's also, you can see it in, in literature, feminist literature, it's, it's very much that she's lauded. Um, and, you know, similarly with Jezebel, that these things that were in the past always seen as incredibly negative and damaging to a culture are now being held up as real virtues. So I think that that is leading to a lot of our confusion. Um, but I think that there's a very tight connection between both Marxism, but also the occult that have entered into the whole this whole debate starting in the 60s. I mean, it's sort of baked into the cake, this really disastrous and deadly combination of Marxism and the occult is what we've been led to. So yeah, I think that's where it started. But Lilith in general, I just want to say is uh, even the word lullaby comes from the Arabic word saying, keep Lilith away from us. And really what she was all about was um, seducing men and killing babies. And I I think that if you look at the feminist movement today, that's really what the main focus has been from the beginning, either um, the seduction or the manipulation of men in one form or another and abortion. Those are the the two pieces that, you know, men are the enemy and our children are the enemy. So you can see how this pattern of who she is has found its way into the fabric of feminism. Right. And being able to turn a blind eye to say Jezebel, you know, did have this power as far as being the queen who really Mm -hmm. almost ruled the kingdom. You know, she really had her husband's ear. And then also she was able to keep the great prophet Elijah hiding in a cave. So it's like you look at that, you kind of turn a blind eye to what really happened in her terrible demise at the end. Mm -hmm. You just look at this one point of her quote-unquote strength to take the upper hand even on God's great prophet. Mm -hmm. 
Right. And I think that that's the goal is just, again, stated goal from the very beginning is to take down the patriarchy, which really actually just means take down the family, get rid of the family. So, yeah, I, I think that's why obviously these women are, are upheld as these role models. And yet the destruction that's been left in their wake is just absolutely devastating. And the book's subtitle is Rescuing the Culture from Toxic Femininity. In its most basic sense, femininity fosters and nurtures life. Therefore, toxic femininity would vehemently oppose life. We have seen this radical disparity between feminists and motherhood even as far back as brushing shoulders with the suffrage movement. Is it possible to be associated with the feminist movement and still retain a Marian spirit that fosters and nurtures life, or is it a lure for social approval and a power play for women to take back the upper hand? Yeah, I think that um, that's a, an incredible question, um, partially because I think that we need to go back even further before the suffragettes and look at, you know, what are, what are women responding to? And by and large, it has a lot to do with the Protestant Reformation, where Our Lady, as a model, both for men and women, is tossed out. But you also have all the religious orders that for women were tossed aside and obviously were not made important as part of the Protestant faith. So what you have left are these women who basically see the only power within the church and, and their salvation is tightly connected with this male pastor. You can see how that also flips where you know men see themselves as superior to women and setting up this very awkward dynamic where you know women, the only way that they can sort of become equals is if they become like men because they don't have any sphere of their own at that stage. So I think that the roots of it are significant, especially when you look at so much of the, the history of feminism and so much of it is a reaction from Protestants that um, you can almost see Catholicism addresses these issues in so much more beautiful and holistic kind of way because the fact that we have intact Our Lady, we have her as a model for both men and for women, and we have the religious orders, that these cloistered women also help us understand our role. They, they mimic on a spiritual level what mothers do on a physical level. Um, this idea of Christ planting a seed or seed being planted in a woman and it being brought to fullness through prayer and through our bodies. So anyway, I, I think that um, I think we just as Catholics, we've been able to sidestep it. And yet so many of us want to jump back into the debate and sort of reclaim the title. But I, I think it's almost going back to William of Ockham, um, who is usually blamed for many things, but pe most people know him for Ockham's razor. Mm -hmm. I just don't think it's bringing anything to the table for Catholics at this point. In fact, I think because it's so loaded with all these issues of Marxism and the occult, that it's actually a drag on what it is that the Catholic Church has done. It's sort of like saying, you know, why don't we just start calling ourselves Catholic Mafia because the Mafia is pro-family? And of course, that sounds preposterous to people. But I think that that's sort of what we're trying to do is reconfigure something that shouldn't be reconfigured because we already have something whole and organic and beautiful in the church that Christ has left us. I don't think we need to add that title to it. And far superior. <laughs> Absolutely. Women are always trying to define feminism as far as where they fit into the pro-life or pro-choice debate. If they mm -hmm. are in favor of life, they are trying to include that suffrage movement, which is sometimes associated mm -hmm. with the first wave because mm -hmm. many of those women, Susan B. Anthony, were pro-life. So they want to include mm -hmm. them as saying, you know, right. feminism had started as a pro-life movement. However, there was also Simone de Beauvoir, who was mm -hmm. starchly pro-choice and totally right. against the family and the structure of the family. 
So even then you had a disparity in women right. who were fighting for the rights of other women. And then mm -hmm. some people even want to take feminism back as far as Plato. Mm -hmm. And you can see threads of both mm -hmm. sides throughout all of history. But mm -hmm. what pro-choice women will really look at is when feminism took off, the radical feminism that started making real changes in American society, which was probably around the 60s and 70s, as you point mm -hmm. out very much in your book. So there is this idea, as you said, of people trying to reclaim or define when exactly it started. So can I be a feminist mm -hmm. or can I be a feminist mm -hmm. based on what it is or, or who its founders are? And mm -hmm. I think people really get into the weeds there because, as you said, Catholicism offers something so much greater. And with this mm -hmm. model of Mary, there really is nothing higher that a woman could achieve mm -hmm. or more respected and understood that she could be be than in the church and yeah. as defined by the church. Right. And I think, you know, people have goodwill. Just the basic point is we want to be pro-woman. We want to help women. But I think that there's some incredible damage in that because women don't live in isolation. We live with families. We live with our husbands. We live with children. We live with our parents. You know, the whole dynamic of community. And I think that's one of the real dangers of continuing to promote this idea of feminism is because it still marks us off as somehow either unique or as victims or as something that I don't think we really want to say. We don't need to put ourselves in sort of this special category um, because as Catholics, of course, we're pro-male, we're pro-child, all of these kinds of things. So, you know, we don't see some sort of masculine, I'm a Catholic masculinist movement. So I think it's a dangerous thing to continue to mark ourselves off and to say that the only way that you can be pro-woman and for women is by using the name feminism, especially because of all this incredible baggage that it really has. I think it's just leading to more confusion than actual clarity. And whenever I tell people that feminism is so deeply entrenched in Marxism, they look at me like mm -hmm. I'm crazy. Aristotle mm -hmm. said mm -hmm. the worst form of inequality is to try to make unequal things equal. equal. How are Marxist ideologies tied into communism and feminism? Yeah, no, this is a great question. And I actually haven't talked about it very much because I think people sort of feel like it goes into the weeds. There's a lot of ideological and philosophical issues related to this. But I think that at the heart of it, most people think of Marxism and the failures of it as economic failures. They just couldn't manage the economy and that's why it collapsed. But I think if you look back at Soviet Union and other areas where it's trying to be implemented, what they're trying to do is create this sort of perfect worker. And that means that you really shouldn't be reproducing because that's inconvenient. And work needs to become your, your primary goal, not the family. So your work becomes all important. So what it is, is this actual twisting of what human nature is. It's trying to recreate us in this image of Marx. And I think we can see that very clearly in the Soviet Union with the access to abortion that they had, the way that they took children away from families, they were raised by other people. All of that dynamic, again, trying to break down the family by this new effort to reinvent people. And it did not sit well with Russians at all. I mean, this is a, obviously an incredible culture with rich traditions of family and whatnot. So they couldn't wait to throw this off. I mean, in addition to the fact that their economy is completely collapsed as well. But that's what's so amazing and just tragic about our own situation is these same ideas were introduced into our own culture through women like Kate Millett. And we didn't recognize that these were actually a problem. And I think much of this has to do with, again, the use of propaganda and the media. You have to remember that all of these things were coming up just as TV was really becoming cutting edge and very much had the capacity to influence a broad scope of people 
in a way that obviously didn't exist prior to that. So these feminist women used it and made it look very attractive and very savvy and sort of this bravado exudes from them that they've sort of figured out the key to the culture. Um, and that is, again, going back to this idea that our children are our enemy and men are our enemy. And you can see that really running through the threads of their ideas that women are the pinnacle, that lesbian relationships are the most important. So there, there's all kinds of problems with it, but they all come back to this idea of trying to change human nature and trying to destroy the family. And again, on the outward appearance of that, even Soviet Russia, what was happening there was triumphed by certain feminists. Simone de Beauvoir Mm -hmm. considered one of the real triumphs of Soviet Russia to be women's liberation from menial tasks at home. And yet, Mm. in 1934, abortions outweighed live births by three to Mm. one in Soviet Russia. This goes beyond conspiracy theory. I think a lot of times when Mm. you start to bring up Soviet Russia, when you start to bring up the tie of Mm. Marxism, with Mm. communism and feminism, people start to write you off as just, okay, this is getting into conspiracy theory. But the truth is, you have to look at this. These feminists who said, looking at Soviet Russia, here was a time when women were freed from menial tasks. But it's it's Mm -hmm. like saying that you're looking at a concentration camp and saying, isn't it great that you no longer have to clean your own house? It's absurd. (laughs) Exactly. Right. No, it it makes no sense. And you're right. I mean, I think people's eyes kind of glaze over when they hear Marxism. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why I've been so grateful to be able to tie it back to Fatima. I mean, even Our Lady warned in 1917 that these lies of Russia if people didn't convert and come back to the faith, that they would spread worldwide. And I I think that's what we're seeing here. Most people, again, think of it in terms of economic terms and socialism and don't see it in the other way. And I think this is one of the reasons why the hot button issues of our current culture, what are they? They're infanticide that is being promoted in places like Illinois and New York. But you also have this um, new socialism, the idea of the new Green Deal. Both of these are not unrelated. And in fact, they're both incredibly related. And they come back to this idea idea of our human nature can change and we can become socialist and as a result we also have to control and actually kill our children because they're getting in the way of our own financial success and in venezuela now is a perfect example this doesn't turn out to be successful for anybody except for those who the small group of people who are in charge who are reaping all the benefits from it and let's talk about kate millett who the new york (laughs) times claims wrote the bible of women's liberation and was among the pioneers of establishing women's studies programs across the country. You explain these women's adherence to Marxism and their engagement in the occult as anti-Marian bomb that is still exploding throughout Western culture. Millet's sister Mallory recorded that Marxist Litany, her sister and other founders of the National Organization for Women would recite. And I think that is interesting. You put it two times in the book because it's so Mm. disturbing. And again, Mallory Millett was actually here at these different events. And so she recorded these things that were happening when now was forming and they are so Mm -hmm. incredibly disturbing. And again, it's not conspiracy theory of some outside ultra conservative Mm -hmm. source. This is somebody who was really there, who really Mm -hmm. saw it, who really recorded what was written and said enchanted in this litany in New York City. And so I think it's worth even saying here. So I'll just read it quickly. Why are we here today? The chairwoman asked to make revolution. They answered, what kind of revolution? She replied, the cultural revolution, they chanted. And how do we make cultural revolution? She demanded by destroying the American family. They answered, 
How do we destroy the American family? She came back. By destroying the American patriarch, they cried exuberantly. And how do we destroy the American patriarch? She probed. By taking away his power. How do we do that? By destroying monogamy, they shouted. How can we destroy monogamy? By promoting promiscuity, eroticism, prostitution, abortion, and homosexuality, they resounded. It's important because, again, this isn't just an isolated group of extremists here. This is the woman who started now and also the woman whose influence helped to establish these women's studies programs across the country in colleges. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. you called that the anti-Marian bomb that's still exploding. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, no, I I think this is a fascinating piece that most of us don't know. And um, Kate, she also wrote this book called Sexual Politics. And you know, one of my favorite pieces of this whole story has been that Mallory Millet and I finally met at one stage after I'd read some of her work. And um, she is actually the one that came up with the word toxic femininity to put in the title of my book, mm. which was amazing because 50 years ago, she's the one that came up with the title for her sister's book called Sexual Politics. And oh so gosh. you can see that she's come full circle. And uh, I think that was really an incredible gift for her to be able to contribute, knowing full well how much sexual politics has really damaged the culture. So Mallory's really in a place where she wants to get this story out so people understand just how damaged both Kate was, but also a lot of these other women that were involved in this. And um, I was grateful to find the work of Phyllis Chesler, who was one of these women, and really chronicled just the incredible amounts of brokenness that you find in these women. Just uh, so many of them had awful relationships with their mothers. You know, it's just amazing to read these details of how awful their mothers were. And then of course, to see what their response was to it. Chesler calls them the lost girls, and they sort of bonded in this brokenness and not really recognizing that they were broken, but just saw what they were doing as as incredibly liberating. So yeah, and they did it in ways that were very attractive. I mean, this is why Cosmopolitan just exploded. It went this billion-dollar magazine. It was just amazing how it really influenced the culture in ways that, like I've said, nothing has been able to really stop it yet. We just haven't been able to find the, the right arguments to help women actually really realize what they're doing to themselves. Even, you know, looking at the statistics, it's kind of horrifying to see the layers of unhappiness that we have in the culture, largely because of the sexual revolution and because of the work of women like Kate Millett. Mm-hmm. Even before now, as you alluded to before, America's first large network of professional women were Catholic nuns. They were the ones who mm-hmm. were running the country's largest private schools and hospital systems. They were nurses, teachers, and CEOs. So why aren't nuns, mothers, and the Blessed Mother celebrated in the matriarchy or sisterhood? And what mm-hmm. is the Marian option? I think it comes back to, again, this issue of are we talking about power or are we talking about fruitfulness in the culture? And I think that these women see power in a very Machiavellian sort of way. And the the way that they think that they can control the culture is, again, by remaining single, by influencing the population through the media and continuing to promote abortion. And, you know, I love even just thinking about sort of the abortion rhetoric that we hear today, because if you hear what these women are saying, they're saying the exact same thing that these women said back in the 1960s. The argument hasn't changed. And they have to completely deny this whole area of science that is making it clear that abortion might not be great 
for everybody. It's not like just getting a haircut, but there are incredible ramifications for it. They're using science from 1972 to make their points and to, to continue to push this rhetoric upon us. So, and I think that that's where you can see just this raw play of power that they're trying to control us and control the way that we think about things and make things look like unmitigated goods that have actually been disastrous for us as a culture. So I think that that's something we have to be mindful of. But yes, the Marian option and what we are offered certainly through Our Lady is something dramatically different. What Our Lady and our devotion to her and using her as a model offers us is actual healing for all of these wounds that these women have been trying to find. Betty Friedan talked about this ache with no name. Well, it has a name. It's this desire for God. It's, it's you know, as old as the hills. It's built into the human person. She just didn't realize that's what she was touching her finger upon. And that's what the Marian option offers us is actual satisfaction, peace, joy, fruitfulness, and a different kind of power that isn't Machiavellian, but is actually has the capacity to transform the culture in, in dramatic ways, not through sort of a, the jackboot or the iron fist or, um, you know, awful rhetoric. Right. And because these women do deserve in their dignity to be embraced and tended for and cared Mm -hmm. for, not left abandoned, you said the anecdote is actually very simple to remind her that this is not who you are. And Mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting when I read those words because... My previous podcast with Dr. Bruchowski, who was an abortionist who is now a pro-life doctor, he said that one of the things that changed him was when he had attempted to perform an abortion, but the baby was born live, and he had to call the neonatologist, who was a Catholic, and she rushed in and took the baby and started working on the baby quickly to try to revive and resuscitate. And then she took him out to coffee the next day and she said, John, this is not who you are. Mm -hmm. And when I read that, it was like right Mm -hmm. on the back of this interview Mm -hmm. with him. That was Mm -hmm. one of the things that stuck with him. And um, this is not who you are. Well, what do you mean it's not Mm -hmm. who I am? I don't understand. I'm Mm -hmm. just doing my job. It doesn't have anything to do with me personally or anyone's dignity or worth or value. Like this is just about a job. For whatever reason, that was one of the seeds that Mm -hmm. affected him. Those were the words. So you had said it's very simple, that antidote, this is not who you are. We have to remind women that radical feminism isn't who they really are. Striving to be like men isn't who they really are. Being consumed by rage, anxiety, and malice isn't who they really are. And living as if there is no God isn't who they really are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, thank you so much for bringing up that point, because I think so often we can hear a discussion on this and we can really start feeling like these women are the enemy, when in fact we know they're not. We know the enemy is Satan. We just know that they've been manipulated in ways that they certainly don't realize. And I think this even helping us to understand who we really are comes back to these basic desires that all women have in their hearts. Certainly the first one is to be loved and known. And um, this is really where that beauty comes into understanding that God's our father and he created us and he created us to do amazing and beautiful things. But all of that is sort of built upon this fundamental relationship with the father of knowing that we're his daughters and he cares for us and he has provided for us and has work for us to do. So I think that's the fundamental piece. And this is, again, where we can see Our Lady being a a model because she understood this in spades. So she was able to trust through all of these things that most of us would have just run from immediately. But in fact, she just trusted in them because she knew that relationship was intact. The second thing that all women desire is to do good. This one is interesting to look at because if you look at what all of these women were doing in the 60s and 70s and even today, 
they're all trying to do good. They're all trying to help others and improve the lives of others. And this is just what women do. It's just incredibly misguided. They just don't recognize that there's actually real consequences, incredibly damaging consequences to what they're doing. And this is, again, where we start to understand the ultimate good is, of course, always to do God's will. And this is what Our Lady did as well, even if it's not particularly clear to us why. Um, even if it doesn't seem like the most objectively good thing that we could do based on our own calculations. So I think that that's another piece. And then the third desire that all women have is, of course, to be beautiful. Um, one of the things that I noted dramatically, it just kept coming up and when I was researching the Marian option. Every single person that had an apparition of Our Lady said she was the most beautiful woman I ever saw. Mm. Um, St. Bernadette said you would want to die just so that you could see her again. She was so beautiful. Mm. And I think that that aspect of her beauty is not incidental. It's not an importance, but it speaks to our desire to be beautiful. Why do we desire to be beautiful? It's a God-given gift that we have to share with others. Every gift that God gives us is, is meant to be shared with others. And yet we can see the distortions of this, whether it's over-sexuality or vanity, where beauty can consume us in awful ways that are not in accord with our dignity. But our beauty is meant to help us see what God looks like. That's why Our Lady is so beautiful, because she's an incredible representation of who God is. And we see this, you know, this is not a new idea. This is why the Rose Window exists in Chartres Cathedral, Notre Dame Cathedral. They understood that the sun passing through a window, that that's the way God's grace works when, when we're beautiful. And so you can imagine, you know, all of us as these kinds of windows and sin just keeps covering them up, covering them up, covering up and doesn't allow God's grace and beauty to, to shine through us. But that beauty is also has the capacity to move people and transform people. And um, that's one of the great cultural elements of Our Lady is this fact that she changes men. She changes women. She gives men something to strive for and to understand and embrace as a mother and as a woman. And we've largely lost that. So it's really reduced women to sexuality, which, of course, is, is not in accord with our dignity. We're much more than our sexuality. And this is, of course, what women have been fighting against for generations, for centuries, really, is this idea that we, we are just sexual slaves. And yet that's what we've allowed ourselves to be reduced to through these ideologies. And as a result, we end up becoming bridges to hell instead of bridges to heaven. Um, that reduction also, of course, brings down men. And, uh, you know, we're seeing in spades what it's doing to our families and to our children now. What I love about the Marian apparitions also in that light of beauty is that she always appears to the culture in a reflection of them. So we mm -hmm. see Our Lady of Guadalupe looks very much like the mm -hmm. people of that culture. And you see that mm -hmm. in other areas too, when she appears in mm -hmm. Asia or mm -hmm. Rwanda or whatever it is, her, right. she very Appearance much, changes. her beauty is reflective mm -hmm. of right the way that the people look in that culture and the mm -hmm. beauty of that particular culture. She doesn't always mm -hmm. appear as one image. One or woman, right. Like that. Exactly. And I really well, love that. And I think what's even more genius, of course, about Our Lady of Guadalupe is that she was able to both appeal to the natives of Mexico, but she also appealed to the Spaniards, even just the, the name. Um, Guadalupe was something that, they, that the Spaniards were already familiar with because there is a Our Lady of Guadalupe of Spain. Mm -hmm who people had a huge devotion to, particularly Columbus. But you also have this, the word which is similar in the native language, which was she that steps on snakes. So there's this sort of almost hologram that, you know, the Spaniards are seeing one thing and one set of visuals from her, and the natives are reading a whole different set of symbols off of the way that she was dressed. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty incredible when you start seeing all these different ways in which she could speak directly to people. And then finally, Carrie, I just want to ask you about theology of home. And on that, 
In our society, we're taught to find the good or tolerable in every ideology or form of rhetoric, and to dissent from that is to be a bigot. So how do we protect ourselves and our children from this anti-Marian spirit, and Mm -hmm. how do you set that up in the theology of home? Yeah, uh, Theology of Home is actually a very different kind of book. I think that um, the anti-Mary and Theology of Home are basically just two different sides of the same coin, because in anti-Mary, I'm making an argument why we need to reject this ideology out of hand. But in Theology of Home, I'm instead of going on the defensive, I'm actually presenting the Catholic faith in all of its beauty and glory and really the, the desires of our heart coming back to that. And the idea of it came to me um, initially when I started, started thinking about you know, all that we're doing as Catholics and Christians is trying to strive towards getting home, that ultimate idea of home. But God has allowed us to see our own homes as sort of sanctuaries, as domestic churches, as a reflection of the church in very clear ways, but to help us almost get a foretaste of what heaven will be like. We can also see homes where, you know, it could be very clearly a foretaste of what hell could be like as well. So it's a very different book. It's highly illustrated. There's 200 photos in it. I co-authored it with some dear friends, Noelle Maring, who's a mother of six out in California, and Megan Schreiber, who's a mother of six in Philadelphia. And um, yeah, it's just, I I didn't want it to feel like sermons. I didn't want it to feel like it was deep theological work where you had to, you know, think about things and go answer questions or something. I just wanted to be sort of a beautiful meditation that women could sit down with certain aspect of it and um, just savor it and then have those ideas be taken with her in her day to think about and reflect upon. But yeah, it struck me that we have all this focus on the home in our culture today. I mean, everything like the TV shows that we're seeing, um, HGTV and DIY networks, you've got this rise of you know home goods, Hobby Lobby, all these different kinds of stores. And Food Network is part of that too. I mean, all of these different ways that domesticity is coming back into vogue. I think of Joanna Gaines and how popular all of the yeah. um, house exactly. DIY house fix yeah. up. Right. You know. No, and I think that's part of it. I mean, the fact that she's now polling is more popular than Oprah mm-hmm. tells us that people are starving for something beyond just great throw pillows, but they want to see their home as a sanctuary. They want to feel like it's a haven where they're nourished and fed and given comfort and safety. And um, so we cover all, you know, all those different elements of the home. So it was a, it was an incredibly fun book to work on because um, both the meditations were just rich for us, um, but the pictures are just awesome. Things that you don't normally see in, in magazines like pregnant women and babies and fam- big families and gorgeous meals and, and a lot of religious art, different ways we're decorating our homes with beautiful religious art. So Anyway, yeah, it was a really fun project. I'm, I'm really excited to have it come out because I think it's a kind of book that you could give to almost anyone, that it doesn't have a lot of um, ideological or even philosophical arguments that people would feel kind of affronted by, but it's just something beautiful and compelling on its own right. How do women and men protect our children going out, you know, as much as we strive to have this theology of home and to set Mm -hmm. up our home to be this domestic church in this sanctuary. But how do we protect our children when they go off from Mm -hmm. the home, when they go off to college and they Mm -hmm. may be experiencing these Mm -hmm. women's programs, women's studies Mm -hmm. programs and things Mm -hmm. like that and encountering so many other people that have been maybe rooted in some of these ideologies? Right. Yeah. Well, I think there's two things. I mean, the first immediate thing is any girl that's going to college should read my book because they just need to have their eyes open to what's going on. I think even seeing the movie Unplanned, you know, Abby Johnson had not just her husband, but also her parents. I mean, everybody that she was closest to didn't approve of what she was doing. 
and yet that tug of other women and just the way that we make abortion look so savvy and trendy and attractive. I think that pull is what's really out there and, and young women are being targeted. Again, you know, Satan knows if he gets women, he gets everybody. So that's why he's really targeting women in particular. So we need to have kind of a good defense and just be aware of these kinds of things. But I think that the other thing that as Catholics we need to start doing is actually offering this kind of offense and presenting the church and all of its beauty in different ways. You know, why is it that there's not one pro-life magazine out there? Why is it that every time you're at the checkout counter, you know if you pick up a magazine, there's going to be something in it that offends you? short of Joanna Gaines's Magnolia magazine. But by and large, we're not thinking strategically. We're thinking very defensively. And, you know, different arguments will be made in the public, and then we try to respond to them. And we respond to them beautifully. But if we don't have the capacity to get that message out through visuals in a way that women consume news, then I think that that's the real problem, is that we've got these low-information voters who will just see that, you know, pro-life is bad and evil, and that's how they'll vote. But why can't we do the same thing? And I think that that's a, a bigger question. And that's one of the reasons why I've started working on this website called Theology of Home. It's a very grassroots effort, but it's just recognizing that women not only absorb information in different ways, but also that we're very visual, that we are very tactile, that we need things that are physical and to recognize that. And of course, this is not something that priests can do for us in a sermon. They're not going to give us tips on how to make dinner, but this is something that we can offer each other. And so by and large, we are forced to go to other sources to kind of find this information. So we need to do a better job within the church as women, I think, in getting our ideas out in visually compelling ways. Again, instead of always playing defense, but to actually help people see what it is that their heart is longing for to begin with. And we've got everything that they want. They just don't know it yet. And without having our mothers or grandmothers or the generations so close together as we used to and maybe being able mm -hmm. to share those recipes or what to do mm -hmm. if someone, you know, a child hurts themselves in a certain way, oh, do this, that and the other thing. And mm -hmm. maybe you don't have the generations so close anymore to be as involved with those mm -hmm. decisions decorating mm -hmm. or how to sew or, you know, just right. basic right. things that people used to be able to ask or pass mm -hmm. on. Now we almost do have to use social media or the internet mm -hmm. or different things like that to still be able to create that for women mm -hmm. who maybe don't have that or it's just not mm -hmm. at close hand. So thank right. you for doing that. Our guest has been Carrie Gresson. Carrie, thank you so much for all that you've been putting out and all the information you're giving people for the time that you're taking to research and expose this. I think that it is so worth your time and your effort mm -hmm. and you will be greatly rewarded for well, it. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no, the fruit's been really encouraging. I recently heard of a, a young woman who was given the book by a priest in a courage meeting and um, she's left the lesbian lifestyle. And, uh, you know, those are the kind of stories that uh, keep us motivated, I think, for sure. Wow. And can you tell us where we can find you, find your books and mm -hmm. find your yeah. writing? CarrieGress.com is certainly where you can find the cache of all of my articles and books. Um, and then, of course, TheologyOfHome.com is the online women's magazine that I'm editing now, too. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. No power.